All that to say, we're continuing on. Today we're in chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus, or as Satan tempts, tries Jesus. And this is, a, to me, a section of Scripture that is really kind of precious to me in a lot of ways. Uh, when the kids were growing up, we had this children's Bible, and it was, it's the best one we've ever found. It's out of print now, but it was just as amazing, had great pictures, and uh, it had some humor to the illustrations and everything, but it was also very accurate. And one of the kids' favorite stories was Jesus being tempted by the devil. And, and one of the reasons was, and I didn't think about it at the time, but we would, I would always make up voices for the Bible characters. And so, you know, we talk, you know, with Jesus, it was always a strong, you know, voice. And, you know, Peter was, you know, super macho trying to do things, but he would always mess up. And of course, but when it came to the devil, I gave him this super whiny voice with a lisp. <laughs> and the kids thought it was hilarious, right? Because to me, that's what, who he is. He's just whiny. He's just a spoiled brat that wants his way. And I wanted the kids to understand they don't need to be afraid of who the devil is because of who Jesus is in them. All these years later, um, the kids, as they've been in college, have come across other kids, you know, and they get into spiritual topics. They talk about spiritual warfare. And they said that so many of the kids that they've talked to are like, well, yeah, I'm terrified of, you know, the devil and, and, and the power of darkness and all of those things, and I don't even want to talk about it. And both Hannah and Michael uh, have said, you know, to them, they just still hear that whiny voice with a lisp. And, uh, and so anyhow, as, as I was preparing for this, I just kept thinking about those many, many nights when the kids were like, oh, read that story again. And so here we are reading that story again in the Bible. But are you going to do the voice? Um, no, probably not. <laughs> That's reserved for my children. <laughs> okay, well, I'll think about it, but probably not. Don't get your hopes up. So in chapter 3, when we looked at that a couple weeks ago, it was the baptism of Jesus. And so, of course, we talked about uh, the reasons that Jesus was baptized. Of course, it was not for him. He wasn't there to uh, cleanse his sins or, or anything for himself. The, the two reasons, really, for Jesus to be baptized were, first and foremost, that he would be connected with us. That when John the Baptist said, no, no, it's, this isn't right. You should baptize me. And Jesus said, no, to fulfill all righteousness, right? And that's what he was talking about, that, that the connection between God and man was, was being made evident there. And really, if you look at the bookmarks of Jesus' earthly ministry, his baptism and his crucifixion, and in both cases, God Almighty is numbered among the sinners. That's how he chose to be identified to us, right? So there's a powerful reason for his baptism there. But the other was the event that took place after when he comes out of the water and Holy Spirit descends as a dove upon him. And God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And, and all heard it that were there that day. Right? John had already given the testimony, This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But now a voice from heaven has confirmed all those things. Right? And so for us, this is the mountaintop experience. Right? I don't believe it was 
quite like that for Jesus because he had such a connection with God the Father. But from the mountaintop, he's now led by the Spirit in the wilderness into the spiritual valley of temptation, right? And we're going to look at some of the reasons for that as we go on. Um, But there's quite a contrast from this high point of his baptism to now this difficult testing of the Lord. Uh, And there's some some great parallels with his baptism as well. Now, just to give you a heads up, we're going to spend most of our time the vast majority of our time today on the first 10 verses, just about the temptation of Jesus. And then we'll kind of wrap up the second half. Uh, I probably should have split it into two Bible studies, but I didn't. So that's how we're doing things today. Uh, Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that you have given us your word, that we could know you more, that we can understand as well as we can the things that you faced for us and Lord, we, we want to draw nearer to, nearer to you today as, as we try and understand these things. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way in this place and your way in each and every one of us, that you would take your word and that you would apply it to our hearts and to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So chapter four, starting in verse one. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Um. Again, this is a huge contrast from the baptism, that mountaintop, now down to this valley. And while it's called the temptation of Jesus and the, the testing of Jesus, testing is really kind of a closer word to the right translation. While there was temptation taking place, and while the enemy was a, wanting to tempt Jesus, it was more of, of a testing, like you would test metal right? It's already got the strength, it's already got the character, but you're testing it to ensure it. Um, But even that was not necessarily, was not for Jesus' purpose. It wasn't so God could find out what Jesus was made of. Um, And I think it's important that we understand that this trial, this difficulty, this time of testing, or this valley, however you want to describe it, where it comes from. Because a lot of times we look at the difficulties that we face in our life and we're like, well, sure, this is a result of my bad decisions, right? I'm in this difficult time because I shouldn't have done these things. And unfortunately, that's probably true a lot of times, but not all the time. I think we get the wrong idea that good people, godly people, people that love Jesus, really love Jesus, that they just never go into these times of valleys. That's not true, right? In fact, we see here, it is the Holy Spirit that leads Jesus into this valley. And there are times in our lives that he does the same. Roads that we never would have chosen. Directions we never would have went. Oh, that sounds like a great idea, right? But the Holy Spirit leads us, and as we're following, we suddenly go, what are we doing here? (laughs) 
this wasn't my idea, right? But there's a purpose and there's a reason. Um, certainly very different for Jesus than it is for us. I find for me, a lot of times, those valleys, those trials, it's to show me things about myself. Things where I thought I, I had it all figured out. Things where I thought I was really strong. The Lord needs to just bring me down a couple notches so that I'm reliant on Him once again. Uh, it's to grow us and it's to mature us in a lot of different ways. Um, but of course, that, again, was not the case for Jesus. Um, and it's also important we understand the Holy Spirit's motive in doing that, right? He's not just doing it to see what we can, you know, take. He already knows. He, he's not just doing it, so well, let's see what they'll do. In fact, we need to know that the Holy Spirit does not tempt us at all, right? Uh, because I've had people point to this and say, well, if the Holy Spirit's leading him, then it's really God tempting him, not the devil. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. James chapter 1 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, right? But he can lead us into valleys. And that the trials and difficulties we'll face in those valleys, he can use to grow us and mature us. Um, now, as I said, it's different for us than it is for Jesus. Is, he didn't need to be grown up. He didn't need to be, be matured. This isn't God refining him or preparing him for ministry in some way or seeing what he could take. Um, and there's really two specific reasons. We're going to kind of hit him as we go, as we look at these things, that, the, that Jesus had to go through this time. We're told that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, and just a couple things about fasting. Uh, I, I think fasting is one of those things that's a little bit mysterious sometimes in the church. So people are like, I've had people go, well, I really, really, really want this, so I'm going to fast for a day. Well, okay. But fasting is not like the, the magic trick to get God to do what you want, right? It's not some thing that shows that we're super spiritual or super godly or, or again, something to overcome God's reluctance. Well, I don't think God wants to do this, so I'm going to fast and then he'll have to, right? Or he'll be more likely to. Uh, fasting is a lot more simple than that. And it's really a very practical, physical application of spiritual truth, right? So the idea of fasting is, is that making my flesh submit to the Spirit. A flesh, even, even though we belong to Christ, our flesh still rules us a lot, Right? Flesh says, I'm hungry. We go, great, let's go get something to eat. Flesh says, I'm cold. Let me get a jacket. What? And, and we just kind of are still being led. And so fasting is a way to say, no, you're going to do what I say. And we're going to seek the Lord together, and I'm going to drag you kicking and screaming, right? That's what fasting is about. And so every time the flesh complains about being hungry, we go, great, let's pray. Great, let's get in the Word. Let's seek the Lord. Let's wait on the Lord. And the more the flesh complains, the more we seek the Lord. That's what fasting is about, right? And, and so it's a practical application of that spiritual desire that, that we want to see where the Spirit is leading the flesh. Um, now, there's also some interesting things. Now, I have never fasted for 40 days. I fasted for three days a couple of times, um, we used to do this thing. Maybe they still do it. It was the 30-hour famine, 40-hour famine. 
30-hour famine. And I remember talking with some of the youth leaders, and this one great brother of mine, Jeremy, and, he, and I said, yeah, 30-hour famine. And he goes, dude, I've forgotten to eat for 30 hours, right? I mean, it's not that long. He's just like, I get busy, and I'm like, hey, I haven't eaten in almost two days. <laughs> and so, but this is different. And, and people who have recorded this type of fasting, whether they were stranded on a boat or whether they were in a prison or whether they chose to try this type of fast, there is a consistency about people that have gone through this. Um, the first is, is that for the first week, it's hard. It's, it's the flesh is really fighting. It wants that nutrient. It wants food. And so there's this, this hunger. But then somewhere during week two, that stops. And your body kind of goes in this shutdown mode where you're not hungry. And, and you're tired. You don't have a lot of energy, but you're just not hungry. And that lasts up until 30 to 40 days. And then a hunger comes that is overwhelming to the point of driving people insane. It is the body's final cry for survival. And that's where Jesus is at physically. So we need to keep that in mind because if we roll over any of this too fast, we're losing the context of what's taking place here, right? That his body physically is taxed to its ultimate limit. And literally at the end of that insane hunger is death. So he's right up against it. And on top of that, uh, the Gospel of Luke tells us that this isn't the only time that Satan came after Jesus. In fact, that it was the entire 40 days. That for 40 days, the enemy is right there just chipping away at Jesus the whole time. And that this is the final assault at the end. These are the three attacks or three temptations that uh, he comes at Jesus with. And I, again, I get, just to keep it in mind, because verse 2 says, and afterwards, after the 40 days of fasting, afterwards he was hungry, right? <laughs> That's not just like, yeah, I could eat a sandwich. It's not that kind of hungry. It's, it's like pushed to the limit. And that's when the enemy strikes. And that's still what he does. Right? I, and I think one of the things I love about this section of Scripture is it gives us some great insights to spiritual warfare. It gives us some great insights to our own flesh and to our very real enemy. I think one of the disservices that has, has been done in, in the church is that we have like two extremes when it comes to spiritual warfare. We've got one that's hyper-spiritual warfare. There's a demon behind every single bush. Every time you sneeze, it's an attack of the enemy, right? That's not biblical. And then you've got the other side that just avoids it altogether. Oh, we just don't talk about those things. And so I think it's good for us to, to look at this is what spiritual warfare looks like. This is what Jesus faced on our behalf. And this is still what we face in our Christian walk to a much different degree, much lighter degree than this, but it's very much the same. The enemy is not that creative. You know, he only has a handful of tricks they work so well, why would he change his tactics? He just keeps doing the same things over and over again. Mankind just keeps falling for him over and over again. No reason to change. But it's good for us to understand what some of these tactics are. And this is the first one here, is that while Jesus has been tempted the entire 40 days, the most intense the attack gets is at the end. It hasn't been this intense the whole time. He slowly, subtly, 
ramps up. The mistake that we make when it comes to temptation, when it comes to spiritual attack, is that in that intense moment or those sometimes intense days, we go, that's it, that's all I can take. And we snap, we shoot our mouth off, we say things we shouldn't, we do things we shouldn't. But if we just waited... The encouragement to us, and it's, it sounds backwards, but if we can get our mind around it, I think it changes the way we, we see temptation and difficulty. Is that the more intense it gets, it should be the devil is tipping his hand. His time is up. He's coming at us with all he's got because he's running out of time. And that's the case here. The 40 days has ended, so he is giving all he's got at the end. And Jesus just deals with him so perfectly so beautifully now i said he's only got a handful of tricks and uh, probably the best description is that all sin all temptation falls into one of three categories uh first john chapter two gives us the best description of that the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life so the lust of the flesh that's just physical need physical hunger physical temptation lust of the eyes the things we see the things that are beautiful desirable remember eve saw the fruit that it was desirable she saw it wanted it the pride of life she wanted to be like god knowing the difference between good and evil right those are the only three categories there are and so while we see that in these temptations that come at jesus they're really only the surface of what's going on and again if we roll over this too quickly it's easy for us to go okay this is a Pretty simple, pretty self-explanatory. But there's a subcontext of what's taking place here that's very important. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit. We'll look at this, the surface things as well, but, but there's more to it than just that. First of all, in verse 3, he says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Well, that again seems pretty, pretty obvious on the surface. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's starving and so here's the temptation, make some bread, right? That's part of it, for sure, that there's that physical draw, but there's a lot more to it than that. Um, and I also don't need to mention this, but I'm going to anyway. Any suggestion, no matter what it is that comes from the devil, is bad. Just don't listen to it. Even as good as he can make it sound, even as good as he can sell it, if, if it's coming from him, or one of his boys, yeah, just dismiss it. There's no reason to, uh, to listen to it all. So he, first of all, he's hitting Jesus here with the lust of the flesh, right? That's that surface side of things. You're hungry. Here, you can make this into bread, these stones into bread, so go ahead and do it. Um, give in to your flesh. Give in to your fleshly hunger is the idea. One of the things that this mis- misleads us a little bit about the subtext of what's taking place here is the way that this is translated, if you are the Son of God, right? And that sounds like the devil is, is bringing into question whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. Well, if you really are, then prove it. That's not what uh, it sounds like in the original Greek. It, it's closer to since you are the Son of God. And what, why that makes a big difference is, is that it changes it from him trying to get Jesus to second-guess himself or... or question who Jesus is, to really, he's questioning the goodness of the Father. See, it's not just an attack against Jesus. He's attacking, attacking God's character. 
the character of God the Father, right? Well, since you're the Son of God, he's not even questioning it. Since, since you've got all the power, since you can do anything you want, then why would God not allow you to change these stones into bread? Why would God withhold something like that from someone he loved? If God really loved you, why, why would he do that? That's the question. So yes, he's tempting Jesus, but he's questioning the goodness of God's character. He's questioning the goodness of the Father, right? And it's the same tactic, tactic he used with Adam and Eve, right? Well, did God really say not to eat of every tree? Are, are you you're saying that God doesn't want you to have knowledge? Is, is he holding something good from you? He doesn't want you to have the knowledge of good and evil. Oh, gosh, well, that doesn't sound like a loving God to me. Same tactic today. All over the place, right? Questioning God's character. Man, since you're the Son of God, you should be able to do all this, and, and why wouldn't God allow you? Now, if Jesus were to do that, and he had the power to do it, and Satan's even admitting he's got the power to do it, it would trap him in a couple of different ways. First of all, it would be the son saying that the father's timing is not correct. That, that if Jesus were to go, yeah, I can make those stones into bread. And since God hasn't done it, then I guess I'll do it myself. It's, it's saying that that accusation is correct, that Satan has just made about God's character. But it also does something when it comes to his relationship with us. Like I said, like his baptism was a connection to us, so is this temptation. That the temptation he's facing isn't for his refinement, isn't for his maturity. It's that he would face the things that we face, that we would have a high priest that can, can understand us at every level, that a Savior that has faced all the temptations that we have faced, yet without sin. And so if he were to use his power as God, it puts him out of our reach. And it makes temptation something that we could easily justify. Well, well, I can't do that stuff. I can't turn stones into bread. If Jesus had to do it, well, then I don't have a chance, right? It would mean that he could not face the same temptation that we do in his humanity. That he would have to result to using the power of his deity to face temptation. Um. Now, Jesus could have fought against Satan in a lot of different ways. He could have argued with him just logically. Um, but again, I love the fact that he chooses to use weapons that have been given to us. Or actually, the weapon that has been given to us as well is what he stands upon and what he uses. In verse 4, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Standing on the Word of God. And again, I, I, throughout the Gospels, I love how Jesus deals with conflict. Man, I just marvel at it. Whether it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees or people just coming at him, trying to trip him up in his words, and just like one sentence, he just shuts them down, right? And he does the same thing here. The, the king of darkness is, is bringing his full assault against Jesus, and Jesus just quotes a verse, boom. I love that, right? And just shuts him down. We're going to see that with all three of these. It's the, it's the same. But, but in doing that, 
in quoting from the Word of God and standing on the very same things that, that we have been given, um, he shows that the Word of God itself is the one thing vital for our survival. It's the one thing we need. Well, there's a lot of things that make life more comfortable, right? Food is a good one, right? Our, ho- our house, our clothes, our car, those are all great things. But more than any of it, we must live by, take in the Word of God. And, and not only that, I think to, go, to kind of expand on that idea Not only is it vital for our survival, the Word of God is more powerful than any trial, stress, or trauma we've ever been through. Any hunger we've ever faced, any disappointment we've ever been given, any horrible thing that's taken place in our lives. And I don't say that to to minimize those. I'm saying whatever it is, the Word of God is enough. It is what breathes life into dead bones. It's what brings salvation to the lost. It's what reveals the character of Jesus Christ, the one who gave everything for us. And man, we need the Word of God more than anything else. And so to stand on that first promise, hey, whatever it is, whatever the enemy's coming at, hey, don't you want this? Whatever temptation he's shoving your way, wouldn't you like that? Don't you deserve that? Wouldn't a loving God give you this? Loving God has already given me the Word of God, and it is everything I need to live. All right, verse 5. It says, Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and their hands shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written, Again, you shall not, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, the enemy changes his assault a little bit. Same motive, same purpose, but just a little different angle that he comes at Jesus with. Um, He takes him from this place of isolation in the wilderness, just the two of them, to the temple, the most crowded place in all Jerusalem. So there's an audience. And I've always wondered, I don't know, but I've always wondered if the people in the temple on that day suddenly saw Jesus and some other dude up on the pinnacle, or whether they were just there and weren't seen. I don't know. But the idea is that they could be seen. So one of the things that the enemy is tempting him with is that these people would see something miraculous, right? Um, So I think that they, they could be seen. There at the pinnacle, again, this public place, the pinnacle of the temple was 200 feet above the Kidron Valley. So it's a pretty big leap. And the little change that the enemy makes here is that Jesus dealt with him, first of all, by quoting from the Word of God. And so now the enemy quotes the Word of God to him. It's a good thing for us to know, to realize, 
The devil knows the Bible really well. There are, there are some people that think, oh, no, he's terrified. of the, oh, you Open up the Bible, the devil's got to run. No, he'd be happy to take it from you and read some scripture because he's been twisting it for thousands of years, manipulating it, taking it out of context, twisting it in order to draw people away, right? It's what he does. And so here he does exactly that as he quotes from Psalm 91. And I'm just going to read to you at Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, uh, what it says. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The part he leaves out is to keep you in all your ways, which is speaking of a lifestyle, of a personality, of the way that you treat people. Now you pull that out, and it can sound like he's saying, yeah, test him physically. And it's really a dare. The way that the devil throws this out is like, I dare you. If God really loves you, make him prove it. Because the word says that he'll, he'll catch you if you jump. His angels will catch you. And he misquotes this verse completely out of context. Again, this is what he does. And this is why, man, as a church... This is why we stress the importance of context. You know, I, again, I love going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the whole Bible because it keeps it in context. That if I were to like lose my mind and just go off course on a, one Sunday, if I keep teaching the word, the next Sunday will correct me. But it's important that you guys just don't take my word for it. That you guys don't take anyone's word for it that you are in the Word yourself, you're reading the Bible, and then you're researching it. You're studying it for yourselves, right? Because the, the Bible is really not hard to understand. It, it's important that we're taking it in for ourselves so that when someone comes at us, as again, this is, this is a trick the devil loves, pulling stuff out of context, leaving parts off of verses, and he has taught it to a whole lot of people who are very good at it. There are whole false religions that have mastered this. And they literally will take your Bible out of your hand and read verses out of context to you. We got to know. We got to be able to go, no, that's wrong. And let me tell you why, right? Context. Understanding. I think even more than, than memorizing a bunch of verses. That's good. It's powerful. But more important than that is that we know the character of Jesus himself. Because there are times that people will quote a verse, and, and, but it's the way they do it, and you just get that like red light from the Holy Spirit of, no, that's not Jesus. And you go, yeah, I, I know Jesus well enough to know when somebody's misrepresenting his character, right? Knowing his word, knowing his character, and being able to stand on who he is. Now, again, the other part of what's going on here is that the devil is, is basically saying, hey, Jesus, I know you're about to start your, your ministry. I know that things are about to take off for you. So put on a show for everyone. Right here in the temple, in front of the priests, in front of the people, you throw yourself off of here. The angels will catch you. And man, that is going to be sensational. Everyone, including all the priests who are going to fight you tooth and nail, will have to admit you're the Messiah. And you can just start your ministry there. Don't, don't try and build up to that. 
start right there, man. Put on a show for the people. And I love the fact, again, that Jesus just shuts him down. Doesn't enter into some long, drawn-out debate. Well, in the original Hebrew, actually, Satan, it says blah, 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 blah. Who cares, right? He just fires at him. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, here's another little important note, a little bit of a side note. The idea of tempting the Lord your God is important because we can look at it and go, okay, so we're not supposed to throw ourselves off a cliff and say, okay, God, you should catch me if you love me. But really, that, that verse that's being quoted there is referring to anything that we do to try and manipulate God. And I already mentioned fasting. So if we're approaching fasting with that, that idea of like, God has to listen to us, that's tempting the Lord. Others... Another teaching that has made its way into the church is that, hey, man, if you give and tithe, God is obligated to give you 10% back or 100% back or 100-fold back. That is tempting the Lord your God. That is, that is manipulating or attempting to man manipulate the creator of the universe. Won't be done. And the Bible speaks very strictly against it. Bad idea. And so Jesus just deals with it. Again, counters his twisting the word of God with using the word of God correctly, right? Not just getting into a logical argument, going, no, let me tell you what the Bible says. Don't tempt the Lord your God. Done. Next. And Jesus is just knocking these out, right? One after the other. Love it. So the enemy knows he's got nothing there, and he takes him away to this high mountain, shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. And again, this is my thought maybe it was only the kingdoms that existed at that time but i believe it was the kingdoms of all time i believe it was every city every kingdom every great empire of all mankind throughout all of the ages were shown to him all at once and all of their glory right well him throwing himself off of the temple becoming the instant messiah for everyone was the pride of life this is a combination of the lust of the eyes, because he saw the kingdoms in their glory, and the pride of life, because he would rule over them, right? Um, again, there's the surface of what's taking place, and I think the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, that's the surface. But what's really happening is the enemy realizes that he's... Uh, why Jesus is there. He knows why Jesus has come, right? And that he's offering him all this. And people say, well, the, the devil can't really do that, right? I mean, he doesn't have the power, the authority over all these things. Well, if you remember when we were in Revelation, we talked about the title deed to the earth, that scroll that's rolled, seven seals upon it. And, they, and the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who's worthy to claim the title deed to the earth? I'm not going to get into all of that again, but the idea is, is that when all authority was given to Adam, he basically had the authority over the title deed to the earth. And then when he chose to sin, he gave that authority over to the devil. And so, yes, the devil has that authority. And if there was no authority for him to do this, then there'd be no temptation for, him, for Jesus to face. Jesus would just go, man, you're lying. That's not true. You, don't have, you can't give, up, give me those kingdoms. But here's what's really happening. 
Okay, and I get, this is so important that we get it. More than the lust of the eyes, more than the pride of life, more than just like, hey, Jesus, you can rule the world. The devil is saying, I know why you've come. You're here to redeem all mankind. You're here to pay the price for everyone. But guess what? I'll just give it to you. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to have a ministry of people constantly chasing you down, trying to crucify you. I'll give it to you. It's all mine, and I can give it to whomever I wish, another gospel records. If there was any temptation, real temptation, I think that would have been it. Of course, if he had taken it, then he'd be in sin. And then he would have died like any person, right? And mankind would be lost forever. And this is where the enemy tips his hand. I love those times where the enemy's just like goofs and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And this is it where he goes, if you bow down and worship me. See, that's what he's wanted from the beginning. And again, if we think about the backstory with Jesus and the devil, Jesus was there when, when Satan rebelled. Jesus was the one that cast him to the earth. He knows the whole story. He knows this guy. He created this guy. You know, that's another interesting thing to think about. Jesus created him. And from the beginning of his rebellion, this is what he's wanted. It's for God Almighty to bow down to him. He said, I will set my throne above the Most High. And this is where he tips his hand. Ooh, too much. <laughs> and, and the Lord just deals with him. Verse 10, away with you, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. And then the devil left, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Again, there's that picture, and I think it's not just in this case. I think we see it in our lives as well, that when this difficult trial and temptation hits us, man, that's the time to just wait it out with the Lord. Man, those times that I want to say something, oh, I'm going to put that person in their place, I'm going to tell them exactly what I don't get, you know, right? You just wait. Lord, I'm going to trust you to be my defender. Lord, I'm going to trust you to be the one that, that does what is right and just. And I'm going to trust you to teach me and mature me and grow me. And I'm going to, I'm going to let you handle the enemy, right? And then we see that when that time is passed, immediately after, there's the Lord. Man, sends his angels to minister to Jesus and that time has passed. I love it. Love it. Okay, so now verse 12, uh, we're going to take a big section here and finish out the chapter. Like I said, I really should have broken this up. We're in it now, man. We're going to go for it. So verse 12 says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus walked by the sea of Galilee and saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, 
Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went through all Syria, and and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed and epileptic and paralytics. And he healed them, and a great multitude followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Now, Jesus comes out of this valley and begins his public ministry. Uh, though it wasn't necessarily completely public, this, you know, he begins calling the disciples, and uh, Matthew jumps over some big sections that we find in the other Gospels. He covers some of Jesus' travels, and you go, why do we need to know all this? Well, he ties it together and goes, well, this is to fulfill prophecy. Jesus was, even the places he went, was fulfilling the very prophecies that spoke about his coming. And then we get to him calling the disciples. Now, I remember when I first got saved, and, and we were going to a church, and, and I'd hear the story, and I'm just like, that just seems so unrealistic to me. Again, I didn't understand the context, right? That some random dude just walks up on the shore to these fishermen and goes, hey, follow me. Leave everything. And they're like, okay. And they just go. And you're like, that's weird. Why would anyone do that, right? Well, there's a lot going on that Matthew doesn't record. Uh, and he, he records parts of it, but we need to keep that context, right? So we've already had John the Baptist there at the river proclaim, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, in that region, and certainly in that time, good news would travel fast. People were looking for the Messiah's coming. They knew the timing was close. And so they were looking for the Messiah. And to have John the Baptist, which all these people had gathered to, everyone in that whole region had gone out to the river, and he says, that's the guy I've been telling you about. You can bet that word spread fast, right? And then Jesus' baptism, God the Father speaks from heaven, the Holy Spirit descends again. People are going to talk about that. The other Gospels tell us of other events that took place, like Matthew just says that he walks up and the boys are there fishing. Well, the other Gospels tell us that he got in the boat, he, into Peter's boat, preached for a while, and then told Peter, go out and cast your net. Peter's like, man, I'm the fisherman, you're the preacher, I'm not, I don't, you don't know what you're talking about, right? But I'll do it anyway. And he brings in this miraculous catch of fish. That's why the sons of Zebedee were mending their, fen- their fence, their nets, because they'd helped bring in that haul and the nets were breaking, right? So Jesus, after all of this, says, you guys want to follow me? You're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that, that's, again, the importance of understanding the whole scene of what's taking place here, that these guys aren't just randomly following somebody. And in this, you know, as Jesus is, is beginning his ministry, you know, we, we know that the overall point was to redeem mankind. That's what he came for. But in that, as he was making his journey from the time of his baptism until his ascension out, out of the grave, in that time, it was about revealing the character of God to the people that 
he was around. He did it by showing the mercy of God. And, and Matthew mentions people being healed of every kind of disease and, and all of these difficulties and, and things that he was delivering them from. Well, that shows the, the character of the Father, that he wants to bring healing. He wants to bring restoration and his great love for people. But primarily, what Jesus did to reveal the character of God was teach the word, to preach the gospel, to bring the good news. And I love that Matthew makes a point that the simple message that John the Baptist had at the river, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the same message Jesus has in his message. The same thing he's bringing to the people. Guys, the time is now is the idea. It's time to change direction because the kingdom's here. And again, you think about that. When John said it, there was like this, yeah, I'm sure it'll be here soon. But when Jesus says it, he's like, because I'm right here. I'm right here, right now. The kingdom is standing right in front of you. It's intense. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. And in the same way, maybe in a lot of different words, different ways of delivering it, it's the same message we, we have to, right? To go out into this lost world to tell people, look, the time's now. The time is now to live for Jesus, to, to receive Jesus Christ and his forgiveness because the kingdom is at hand. Things are drawn to a close. Man, we're seeing the curtain starting to, starting to close on the sides of the stage. The kingdom is at hand. But we as individuals, like I said, I think we can walk away from this chapter and go, man, we know that we're going to face trial and temptation. We know we're going to go into valleys. But the Lord knows how to use those. Our job is to draw near to Him, to stand on His Word, and to trust in His timing. And the end of that valley may be a lot closer than we think, right? We know that He loves us and that He's got a great plan for us. And just by holding to Him, standing on His Word, He's going to get us through the other side. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.